Well, I slacked this week, and I did not get a chance to, uh, to send off my text and title, but we'll be in the book of Ruth today, Ruth chapter 3, in verses 1 through 7. Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If I could get there. And I've decided to entitle this sermon, A Plan of Proposal. Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And if you'll please stand with me for the reading and the hearing of the word of God. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash thyself therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor. But make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie. And thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down. And he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me, I will do. And she went down unto the floor. And did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went down to he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. And she came softly and uncovered his feet, and laid her down. Please be seated. Well, it's been a while since we've had a chance to come to the book of Ruth to examine it once again. So by way of reminder, before we dive into our passage today, we've got to think back on what has happened so far. Naomi, at word of a famine that came into Bethlehem of Judah, left and fled from the presence of the Lord into Moab with her husband Elimelech and her two sons. And while they were there, her husband died. Her two sons had taken Moabite wives and they also had died. But Ruth heard of God's providence for his people and how he had ended the famine. And so she had determined to come back after some time. And so she brought with her Ruth the Moabitess. And on the way back, Ruth the Moabitess made a major declaration of faith. She determined that she would no longer be as a Moabitess, but live as an Israelite. And so in that state of being widowed, And childless, Ruth and Naomi return to Bethlehem of Judah. And so as they are there, Ruth begins to go out and glean in the fields. So we can tell through the narrative so far that Naomi had at least encouraged Ruth in the way of Israel. She had taught her at least some of the laws and some of the customs and probably even practiced the religion of Israel even as she was away in Moab. And Ruth saw this and took note. And so she was encouraged by it. She made that declaration of faith. And now in chapter 2 of the book of Ruth, Ruth goes out to glean in the fields. It was a a law that was handed down to allow for, for generosity to those who were impoverished. And so Ruth goes out into the fields. 
and she's seeking to simply eke out a meager, beggarly existence where she can simply subsist and uh, have Naomi subsist with her. But instead, her hap was upon, as the king's English puts it, the field of Boaz. And this wasn't just some man. It was a godly man, a virtuous man, also happened to be a fairly wealthy man, but also happened to be a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. And so Boaz takes care of Ruth and and goes above and beyond what his duty and obligation is in terms of the gleaning laws and provides for Ruth. And so Ruth takes that news back to Naomi, and there is a flutter of excitement that a near kinsman has taken mercy on Ruth and Naomi. And so that is where we closed last time at the end of chapter 2, and now we come to what we could consider this third act in the drama of redemption that we have here in the book of Ruth. The barley harvest is ending. Ruth has been out laboring in the fields. Naomi has been recovering from some melancholy, some from her laments of being away. Remember, Naomi said, call me no more Naomi, meaning pleasant or pleasantness, but call me Mara. Call me bitter because the Lord hath dealt bitterly with me. But Naomi hasn't been idle in this time. As she sat there and she's watched Ruth day by day go out into the fields to glean and bring back this bountiful harvest, thanks in part to the provider Boaz, but more importantly to the ultimate provider God, Naomi has made a determination. And so she says, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee? that it may be well with thee. Naomi has a desire. She has a plan of proposal for Ruth to go unto Boaz and plead her case for a kinsman redeemer according to the laws of leveret marriage. Now that is a theme that we've looked at over and over again as we've come to this book of Ruth. And it undoubtedly is is the, the main theme that ties it all together, that there is a kinsman redeemer. And so they had this hope of a kinsman redeemer, as we saw in chapter 2, that Boaz had taken notice of Ruth and had provided for her and provided special care for her. But that was not a certainty. And so they've been hoping all of this time. And now the time is coming to a right time. The barley harvest was ending. Perhaps Boaz now had time to think about other things outside of just simply harvesting this first major crop that they likely had in a long time due to the famine. And so Naomi says, I'm going to seek a place of rest for you. It's a great rhetorical question. Shall I not do this? Of course she should. Her desire in this plan is first of a maternal nature. She calls Ruth my daughter, and that's not just some passing statement. She really dearly loves Ruth. Keep in mind, as they departed out of Moab, Orpah, her other daughter-in-law, turned back, who undoubtedly Naomi had loved as well. But Ruth said, no, Naomi, I will go with you. I will go all the way back to Bethlehem of Judah. I will leave Moab. I will leave my people. I will leave my gods. I will go with you the full distance. I will be there with you. I will be as the Israelites. Your God will be my God. And so in this 
Ruth is adopted into the family of Naomi, not simply through her marriage, but through her care and that mutual love that they have for one another. Think about it. We have plenty of mothers in our church here, and what a great blessing that is. Mothers, wouldn't you do anything you possibly could for your children? Wouldn't you seek their absolute best? And so this is what Naomi is doing here. It's that maternal care. And children, think about what your mother does for you day by day. Even though I'm, I'm grown, I'm still very grateful for all the things that my mom does for me, even now. That's something that you get to look forward to all of your life, that you have a mother that cares for you and is constantly seeking your very best. And so that is Naomi's desire there, that Ruth would have the very best that she could possibly have. So she seeks out a, a rest for Naomi. The underlying Hebrew here is actually a place of rest, not a, a bed or a house, but the context here is that Naomi should seek out a marriage for Ruth. Again, we come back to this, this Old Testament law, the law of leveret marriage, where they're depending on the next of kin uh, to raise up children in the name of the deceased. And that's exactly what Naomi is appealing to here. She's thinking to herself, there's a way that we can accomplish this thing, that I can arrange a marriage for my dear daughter Ruth, and I can do that by appealing to this law. So she's seeking a marriage for Ruth. And this is important. It's very important that the inheritance of the people of Israel does not, uh, does not decay, does not go out from the, who rightfully owns it. So we see this in the Old Testament. If you were to read through the foundational books, uh, you read how uh, there's these three daughters, and they even have a claim to the land. That's how important this, this family inheritance is. And so Naomi is appealing to this and saying, we, we can keep our inheritance. We can utilize what God has provided to provide the very best for Ruth. That's her desire. Her desire for this plan of proposal. And then she says to Ruth, Now is not Boaz of our kindred? So she's thinking. You know, they've had a chance. They've been in, in Bethlehem of Judah for some time. And so as Naomi went to glean, I'm sure Ruth was probably uh, getting back into the community. Catching up perhaps with some old friends looking around, trying to figure out what had changed in the many years that she had been gone. But in that time, she also learned that, yes, Boaz not only was a near kinsman that she already knew, but that he was eligible. And that this is a chance that perhaps Boaz could actually really fulfill the obligation of a kinsman redeemer. So she sees a solution present in Boaz. But when she talks of Boaz, she doesn't use that term goel. If you remember back, we said if there's two Hebrew words you learn, the first is goel, the redeemer, and the second is hesed, God's covenant faithfulness is usually what that aligns with. Well, here, uh, goel could be translated as kindred. However, this is simply a relative. And so there's a bit of doubt even in, in Naomi's speech here. So, and now is not Boaz one of our kindred, one of our relatives who could potentially serve? But she hedges that bet and says, with whose maidens thou wast? 
And so she tries to encourage Ruth as she's speaking and getting ready to reveal this plan of proposal to Ruth that they have in your kinsman, that even though they're unsure if he would actually fulfill that obligation as the kinsman redeemer, that he has shown himself to care for Ruth. And this phrase, whose maidens that, uh, with whose maidens thou wast, is not simply just, you know, you, you hung out with the women that worked in this field. It's calling back on all that Boaz had done to provide for them. When Ruth was in the fields and Boaz didn't even know who it was, he called Ruth in to eat with the rest of his, his field laborers. And he provided a meal for her. And not only that, he provided extra. So he told his men that as they would go and glean in the fields, that they should purposely drop some of that harvest, that first major harvest, since the famine, so that Ruth could come along and pick it up and take it home to provide for herself and her mother-in-law, Naomi. But not only that, Boaz provided a safe place for Ruth. As she went out and gleaned in these fields, she wasn't out there gleaning alone, just waiting for whatever to happen to her. No, Boaz said, come with my maidens and work alongside them. Glean the field, pick up these fallen sheaves and they're yours. That was this special providence that Boaz had for Ruth and for Naomi. And so as Naomi is about to tell Ruth of this plan of proposal, seeing this solution in Boaz, she's bolstering Ruth's confidence that Boaz could indeed be this kinsman redeemer. The uncertainty of of if he would do it is outweighed by this confidence that he is a virtuous, godly man that cares. And so Ruth, or Naomi rather, has a bit of information that is crucial. She goes and tells Ruth that, behold, he winnoweth in the threshing threshing floor this very night. Now in this time and in this place of Bethlehem, Judah, in the fields there would be a spot that would be cleared out and stamped down. And it would be situated in such a way that the evening winds would come through. And as you're sitting there and you're winnowing the, the, the grains, you're raising them up, that the shaft would be blown away by the, the evening winds and the grains would fall back onto that flat spot so they could be collected and then uh, milled and turned into whatever they, they needed to. And so that's the setting that's about to, that Ruth is about to go into, this threshing floor out in Boaz's field. And during this time as well, when you had a big harvest like this, that threshing, that act of, of bringing in that last bit of harvest, was usually accompanied by a great feast. It'd be a joyous time. You get to enjoy the fruits of the labors. And so that is kind of the setting that's happening here. So Naomi tells Ruth that, Boaz will be there that night. And she also learns that he'll probably have a chance to be set apart from the rest of the, of the group. It wasn't uncommon this time of the judges that the Midianites would steal into the land of Israel. And that they would go and they would steal away that harvest that the Israelites had worked so hard for. And so perhaps Boaz was going to be out by the threshing floor by himself to stand guard, to keep watch. And so... That's the suggestion. Go out to him when he's set apart, where you can talk to him privately and make the suggestion. And so now, Naomi 
reveals her plan. So she commands Ruth to wash thyself therefore and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor. So that's the first part. Ruth is to wash herself and anoint herself and to change her her clothes, to put on different clothes. Now this isn't just to uh, make herself physically beautiful, and that's really not what's in scope here. Boaz is a man of virtue. We would assume that despite even his humanity, that he wouldn't be so easily carried away by the looks of a woman. That's what we're banking on as a virtuous man, right? And so... Naomi tells Ruth to go and do these things because Ruth, all this time that she has been in Bethlehem, Judah, it's likely that she's either had on the clothes of mourning, mourning her deceased husband, or that she's uh, been arrayed in the garments of a laborer, that she has this kind of quality of ineligibility about her. And so Naomi goes and tells her to wash and anoint and change her clothes, representing a change in mindset. Where before Ruth was cut off, she was obligated to the duties that were present before her. The duties of going and gleaning in the field. The duties of caring for her her widowed mother-in-law, who Naomi and Ruth, that was the family that was left. They had to care for one another. They couldn't truly depend on anybody outside. They were simply dependent on the mercy of those outside of their small little family there. And so this change of clothes, this washing, this anointing, was to show herself to be an eligible person for marriage. Now we might think that this this proposal seems odd at this point. Even in our society today, men are typically the ones to propose. Now of course, in our modern times, everything's changing, but traditionally that's how it has been. But this isn't an ordinary marriage. Ruth isn't proposing a first marriage for herself. She's going to go to Boaz and uh, take to him this proposal of fulfilling the leveret obligation, the obligation of a near kinsman. And so while this may seem odd to us, this is culturally acceptable. It's an appropriate action that Naomi is is suggesting to her daughter Ruth. But Ruth, Naomi also tells Ruth, Make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. And perhaps Naomi is using that practical wisdom, that light of nature to say, Hey, men are usually more inclined to listen after they've had a good meal. I know that I'm more inclined to listen after I've had a good meal. So surely this was still the case back in those days. There's something to that, that, that phrase, fat and happy. And so maybe, maybe Naomi is counting on this. But the, the reality of it is, is that she's really uh, telling Ruth to wait until the, the festivities have died down, where they're not going to be disrupted, where Ruth can go in to Boaz and make this proposal. And she says, It shall be when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet. And lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And this is scandalous. It sounds scandalous. Even in the original, if a, 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 a Jewish person were to, to read this, the, the wording and the verbiage here does have a, a ring of, of moral ambiguity, we could say, to be euphemistic. She's to go in and uncover the feet. And if we think through 
uh, that, that King James usage, you know, Saul went and uncovered or um, covered his feet as he was out chasing David. So that could certainly have some uh, innuendo built in there. But again, this is not a scandalous thing. What Naomi is asking Ruth to do is actually very, very morally upright. Ruth has shown herself to be a, a woman of virtue. She's made this declaration of faith. She's followed up in how she's lived in her time there in Israel. And we've seen Boaz, this, this man of valor, as the word puts it, that he's a righteous man, mighty in the Lord, a godly man. And so banking on this, this virtuous couple, or not quite yet a couple, Ruth and Boaz, Naomi is telling Ruth to go and do these things. She's to mark out the place where he'll lie down, knowing that he'll be separated, knowing that they could talk undisturbed. And she's to go and lie at his feet. And this is, from what I can gather from the commentaries, a very customary way of making this lever proposal. It's a sign of humility that, that Ruth would go in and, and lay herself down at the feet. And as she does, she's to wait there until Boaz acknowledges her and tells her what to do. And even in that, there's still this ring of uncertainty. Naomi doesn't know for sure if Boaz will accept. She may have also found out in her time as Ruth was out gleaning that perhaps Boaz may not have actually been the next of kin in order to perform this. And so she's telling Ruth to go and do these things. Make yourself to be eligible. Make sure that you're not going to get disrupted. Make sure that you can do all of the customs that are befitting of this type of proposal and go in and humbly ask Boaz, would you be our kinsman redeemer and wait? And he'll tell you what to do. There's an uncertainty, but there's a confidence that this will happen. I couldn't help but think as I read through this and meditated on this of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I love that book. And in the beginning part, Christian has this knowledge of a problem. That he's weighed down with this burden of sin. And so he comes to this man, Evangelist. And Evangelist is making a proposal, to a plan of proposal, even to Christian Pilgrim, and says, See yon wicked gate? See yon shining light? Go there, knock, and they will tell you what to do. And so even so, Naomi is telling Ruth, Go there to Boaz's threshing floor. Ruth, you have a problem, my dear daughter. You are a Moabite. You're not even supposed to be here. You're impoverished. You're laboring constantly and working and not really making progress. You're a widow and you're childless. And those things in this culture were signs of God's disfavor on a marriage to be childless or even to be widowed at a young age. So Naomi recognizes this problem for Ruth, but then she says, there, in Boaz's threshing floor, go there, and you'll find rest. You'll find this place of rest. Rest from your poverty. Rest from your shame. You'll find a place that will be good for you. 
But that's not all. This is not just a book about an historical account. There's a a spiritual sense and the fuller sense of what's being communicated here in the book of Ruth. It's not just Naomi telling Ruth to go to her kinsman redeemer and seek his mercy. Oh, this book points us to something much greater. It points every single one of us as sinners to our kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're here today. You're, you're weighed down with that sin, that same sin that Christian Pilgrim had as well. But there's a place for you to go, to find that rest for your soul, to be free from that burden. And that is at the feet of Jesus, to humbly come before him and seek his mercy, even as Ruth is commanded to go out to the threshing floor of Boaz and seek his mercy upon her and act as, his, as her kinsman redeemer. We come now to our second point, part of this passage, and it's Ruth's obedience. So Naomi has made this plan. She's seen this problem. She has a great desire, a great care for her daughter Ruth, and so she tells her to go out to the threshing floor of Boaz. That's the first part, a plan for proposal. But now we come to Ruth's obedience. And Ruth hears all of this, and she simply says, All that thou sayest unto me, I will do. Ruth is a woman that is very committed. She's committed to the duties that she has. We saw that as she went out into the fields to glean. She had no expectation that anybody would harbor a Moabite. The Moabites were cut off from the people of God. They didn't help Israel in their wilderness wanderings, and so God pronounced a curse on Moab. Ruth was a Moabite. She was of Moab. She was to be separated from this people of God. And now she, by duty of caring for her mother-in-law, goes out into those fields to glean. And even now, in this passage that we have here before us, she does her duty in being obedient to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she says, All that thou sayest unto me, I will do. But there's challenge in obedience. This was not an easy thing for Naomi to ask Ruth to do. Naomi certainly said to herself that this would be hard because this daughter who cared so greatly for her, she was effectively telling, go your own way and leave me be, in a sense. But Ruth had the even harder portion here. She had this great challenge of obedience because, as we said, she was a Moabite. What she was going to propose to Boaz was not favorable in any way. Financially, Boaz is a farmer. This is an agricultural society. They've had years of famine. Certainly, there was a great financial burden to act as the kinsman redeemer. He'd have to buy back that inheritance that Naomi and Elimelech had sold off as they went into Moab. So he'd have that financial burden on him. And this is the first major crop, as far as we can tell, since the time of that famine. But not only that, there there is that social aspect of Ruth being a Moabitess that he'd have to overcome. She's a childless widow. As we've already said, culturally, that showed at least some disfavor of God on that marriage. 
And so there's a stigma there with Ruth being this childless widow Moabitess who's coming to the feet of Boaz to beg that he would be their kinsman redeemer. So Naomi effectively asked Ruth, I want you to take all of your hopes, your dreams, your heart, hold them out in your hand to Boaz and propose this plan to him. Ruth says, I will go and do this. She's obligated by love to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And even perhaps she loves Boaz, maybe not romantically. We would certainly hope that that would be the case, knowing the full story. But because he has cared for her, he's taken an interest in her and, and made sure that she would be safe and provided for in her efforts. And so here she's going self-sacrificing before him, holding this out and simply waiting for him to either receive it or to reject it and destroy and crush her. So that's one of the challenges that's there. But there is a social challenge for Ruth as well. And while Naomi uh, has in mind what is good and upstanding here in her proposal or her plan of proposal, Others could see this and misconstrue the events. Here's this woman that's been in mourning this whole time. She's had on the sackcloth and ashes of a widow. She's got the grime of a laborer. And here she is. She's all dolled up and she sneaks away in the night to go privately to Boaz. Perhaps she's a seductress. Perhaps she's trying to tempt Boaz, who the community surely knows is a virtuous man, into, into some sort of sin. And if someone were to see that and get the wrong idea, that would be very costly. It would ruin Ruth's reputation. Certainly as she worked and labored there in Jerusalem, or in Bethlehem rather, uh, the people would have taken notice of her hard work, of her care and devotion to Naomi. And this would ruin that reputation she had worked so hard to build. We're in a small town here in Virginia. Think about it, if you've ever moved to a small town or if you're from a small town, it is hard to become part of that small town community. It could take years to break in. It could take generations. Ruth is effectively going there to small town Judah and trying to be accepted as part of the community. And all that effort that she'd put into this point, if this plan backfired backfired against her, she would be ruined. Naomi would be ruined for even suggesting this. How could you take this poor Moabite woman and propose to the virtuous rich man Boaz that they should be married? It seems far-fetched. And so Naomi's reputation would be called into question as well. And Boaz's reputation would be called into question. If they simply misconstrued these events of Ruth stealing away in the night dressed up, anointed, dressed to the T, as you'd say, going to, Ruth, uh, going to Boaz privately. Perhaps people would talk about Boaz. Oh, well, you should know what Boaz did this other night out by the threshing floor. And so Boaz's reputation, that good reputation of a valiant man, a man of character, would be ruined as well. There are great costs to this plan. 
That's even true for those seeking salvation. There are great costs in discipleship. It is a hard thing to put off everything from yourself. Ruth was, in this final act, was removing that last little bit that remained of her Moabitess heritage. She was casting off those old garments. And that's exactly what you're to do in discipleship. To put off the old garments. To put off the old man. And to put on new garments. To put on Christ. It's costly. People are going to talk about you. People are not going to understand what's happened. My, perhaps one of my favorite Martin Luther stories is some old friends came to Brother Martin after he had been converted. And they wanted to go out and, and do all the old things. And so he had to tell them, Martin doesn't live here anymore. He's dead. Because Martin Luther was a new man. That is the cost of discipleship. To be dead to that old man, that old man of sin. To be a new creation in Christ. That is a great challenge of discipleship. But as we continue to read here, Ruth counts the cost and she does it. She goes down to the threshing floor. She went washed, anointed, changed, showing that change in mindset that she had. She's changed in person, as we could say. And she goes down to the threshing floor and does all that Naomi had bade her. And that does all is really exactly all. Ruth didn't leave out a detail. She followed the plan to a T. She did everything exactly as Naomi had told her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn, and she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. As we said, there was probably a feast that accompanied this harvest. And we should note here that as it says that Boaz ate and had drunk and his heart was married, it is not to indicate that Boaz had fallen into some sin of drunkenness. No matter your opinions on Christian liberty, drunkenness is still a sin. It shows uh, a lack of stewardship. And here we've seen that Boaz is an upstanding character. He is a man of valor. He's a man of good character. And so drunkenness is never something that should accommodate a man of, of virtuous stature. It's more likely that Boaz was, was merry. He was rejoicing. He was giving thanks to God for this bountiful harvest, for the protection that God had provided over it in all this time, that the Midianites hadn't come in and tried to steal away that harvest that they had worked so dearly for. Some commenter, commentaries had made mention that uh, there's, there's an extended kind of commentary on this that goes way back. And it says that Boaz didn't even miss his evening worship and thanksgiving and prayers. Even in this time of hard work of bringing this grain and winnowing in the night. And so Boaz was showing himself once again to be this man of valor. And so he goes and he lays down. Tired from the, the day of hard work. Tired graciously through thanksgiving and rejoicing with his workers over this plentiful harvest that God had provided. And so Ruth comes in quietly, not to disturb him, not to be seen by outsiders, so that when the time was right, he would awake and they could have this discussion 
where she could present this plan of proposal. That is the third act and first scene of this drama of redemption. And as we close the curtain on this scene, we should think of how this applies even to us today, and we've made some application as we've moved throughout. But first, there is a kinsman redeemer. This is our first point of application. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the kinsman redeemer of all humanity. It's not an unsure thing. He said that all who would come to him, he would in no wise cast out. So with confidence, you can go to him. You can lay down at his feet humbly and ask for mercy. Mercy over your sin and be relieved of it. And find that place of rest. Oh, but believer, we can even have an application inside of this application. That there are those who need the solution to their problem of sin. They need that kinsman, redeemer. And so we can look to that person. Surely somebody has come to your mind even now. And think, this person needs to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can point them to him. And that's the great duty of discipleship. That you have trusted into Christ. And so in some way, even in the smallest little bit, you have been entrusted with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so you can be like Naomi. Be like Bunyan's evangelist. Point point them to that wicked gate. Point them to that threshing floor of Boaz which is the cross there of Jesus Christ, where he bore the sins of all those who would trust in him. Second, the challenge of obedience. Day by day, we're faced with that challenge of obedience. It's not just when you first come to Christ and all those, all those weighty matters, all those costs that you have to count that add up. Even day by day, it continues. But the Lord Jesus Christ told a parable that there was a a merchant who was looking for pearls and upon finding a pearl of great price, went and sold all so he could have it. Jesus Christ is that pearl of great price. Even when the challenges of obedience in your day-by-day life mounts up, even when those costs of discipleship seem too much to bear, don't look at those challenges, but look ahead. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to that eternal hope, that hope of glory. The Apostle Paul, in recounting his life and the challenges that he faced, he said, all of these things are as light afflictions. This is the man that was shipwrecked, beaten, perhaps even to death. And all of these things were nothing to him in the weight of glory. Believer, beloved, that is your hope. Look to that hope of eternity. Consider that weight of glory. When you're weighed down by the challenges of life and those challenges of obedience, look to the hope of glory. It is a great thing, this drama of redemption that we have here for us, to consider how, even in the Old Testament, God was working to bring people to salvation. How she took, how he took Ruth, this Moabitess, this stranger cut off from him and brought her in to the people of God. And now we see this drama unfolding as she goes to her kinsman, her near kinsman, and seeks his mercy. Amen. Let's pray.
Father God, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for just this wonderful narrative, this historical fact of how you worked to bring Ruth, this Moabitess, uh, into the fold of God. That you worked through Naomi to to uh, uh, plot and plan and, and point Ruth to Boaz. That you worked in the life of Boaz to be a virtuous man. But most of all, Lord, that all of these events point to something way greater, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that uh, we have this book that we can study, that we can learn from, that we can grow from, that can help us in pointing others to Christ, that can strengthen us in our faith. Lord, help us as we uh, go through our lives, go through our week to, to see that hope of glory, to not be weighed down with the cost of discipleship, but to see that reward that's laid up in heaven even for us now to treasure it, to not be put off by the things of this world, but to have our, our, our attention trained on Christ. These things we ask in his precious name. Amen.